Welcome to the Shema Podcast, the podcast for the perplexed, where Torah insights intertwine through personal stories as well as interviews with leading Torah scholars demonstrate the empowering qualities of Torah and mitzvot. For more great Torah learning through Torch, the Torah Outreach Center of Houston, go to torchweb.org. Now to the show. Welcome back to the Shema Podcast. It has been over 30 days since I have done an episode, and I apologize for that. I do have a very special surprise to hopefully make it up to you. But the reason I've been so absentee is that I have been involved in a move. I have moved into a Jewish community. You know, I was thinking the other day that if Walt Disney had designed the perfect resort for a Jew, this would be it. It's been such an incredible experience to be around other Jews who believe in Torah, who believe in Hashem, to be able to just walk around the corner and daven with other Jews. There's this shul around the corner called Hymish in a home that was converted to a shul and it just has the most amazing group of guys. When I'm davening, I can't keep up. I have no idea what's going on the majority of the time. Everyone will yell out something in Hebrew. I have no idea what they're saying, but I just say, amen, whatever they said. You know, my daughter's going to a Jewish day school. She's she's so happy there. And I encourage any of you who are not living in a community to visit one. You have to experience this. This is the type of environment we belong in. And we're renting a home right in the heart of the community. It's a perfect location. We're renting here for probably another year and a half, maybe two years while a new home is being built. And... Earlier this week, the AC went out, and the, the owners of the home are wonderful people. They immediately took all the efforts necessary to get someone out here to fix it. But on Monday, I was, it was 88 degrees in my office, and I was just sitting in here sweating. And I don't like to sweat, except when I'm at the gym. Other than that, I don't like perspiration. You know, when you read in the Shekona Rook, it will often say, well, there's some leniency with this halakha for the delicate man. And every time I read that, I think, do you have to call me delicate? so demasculating, but that's, that's who I am. But I was thinking at the end of the day, the AC guys came in the evening, got the AC going, and I realized that all day while I was sitting here sweating, I was so happy. It didn't matter to me. If I was back in my home up in the, the suburbs where no Jews live and my AC had gone out, I'd been miserable. I started thinking about something that's sort of funny. You know, around 14 years ago, I was talking to my sister. She was in the business of retrofitting homes to be smart homes with all the newest electronic gadgetry. And she was telling me about a very popular item in the Jewish community that was a Sabbath oven. And I said, what's a Sabbath oven? And she explained to me that Orthodox Jews can't turn on their oven on the Sabbath. And I said, that is the most superstitious thing I've ever heard of. And she goes on to explain, well, yeah, they can't do that. They can't drive in a car. And I was just baffled by this level of superstition. And I remember thinking to myself and reflecting on a study I had read many years earlier where it analyzed the collective IQ of various populations in the world. And the Jewish people have the highest IQ out there, even with me bringing down the average. And I remember trying to reconcile how can such an amazingly intelligent people be so superstitious. And I remember reconciling to myself that the reason was is that because they were orthodox 
and they were only marrying within such a small subset of the population, a very finite pool of DNA, that they were developing some sort of psychological ailment, a type of psychosis that was causing these highly intelligent people to be so superstitious. Now, as a side note, I, I will share with you, for those of you who are new to Torah, that the quote-unquote Orthodox Jews do not refer themselves as Orthodox. They don't acknowledge that term. They don't acknowledge the term Reform, Conservative, because nowhere in the Torah does God say, I am creating a bunch of Jewish denominations. And so to even acknowledge that is to compartmentalize them from their brothers and sisters. So they don't like that term. The only people that use the term Orthodox Jews are people who are not observant yet and in how they refer and categorize Jews who are observant to Torah. That is why they only refer to themselves as Torah observant Jews. So it's more of maybe just being more observant to the laws of Torah. Back to my original point, I, I thought these Orthodox Jews had some type of psychological ailment to them to be so superstitious. And I remember thinking like, you know, stay away from them. Who knows what they're capable of? And then, of course, you know, around 10 years ago is when I fell under the avalanche of all the logical proofs for Torah being divine directly from the heavens. It's undeniable once you delve into it. Anyone who says it's not never delved into the subject. And when I fell under that avalanche, I literally switched in a very quick period of time from being someone who had disdain for the quote-unquote Orthodox Jew to thinking they had some psychological ailment to realizing that they are the only people that have true clarity in the world and the rest of us are just living in a total fog. And I went from having disdain towards them to wanting nothing more than to be like them, to be with them. And so through this journey, just to be here and be with them is is just such an incredible experience. But I was thinking something further. You know, at Tishba Av, we mourn the destruction of the temple. When you think about the exile to Babylon, the stories of the heartbreak of the people to be, to be pulled from their home in Israel, the, the temple, and the anguish they had, they couldn't understand how life would ever go on. But they persevered. They built schools. They built mikvahs and all the infrastructure they needed, and they began to thrive start businesses, building homes. And then around 70 years later, they got word, we can go back to Israel. And what did the majority do? Ah, eh, no thanks. We're actually quite comfortable here. And that's certainly what has happened to us throughout all our exiles and all the different nations around the world. And I don't want to lose my excitement for being here, but at the same time, I have to recognize that our home is in Israel with a temple, with the Sanhedrin court, that future that God willing will happen very soon. But it got me thinking about this question of what is the role of a Jew in a host nation? In my 20s, one of the areas that I love to study was that of economics. I always found it fascinating, always want to learn more. And eventually, when you're studying economics, you realize that economics cannot be divorced of government structure, a government's policies, like in our country, federal monetary policy, all those things influence in. And I became very interested then in that subject. So I, I got a book called The Heritage Guide to the Constitution to learn this subject matter. And what the book does is it takes each clause in the Constitution and sources it from the Federalist Papers, the notes from the Constitutional Convention, 
And in some instances, it would reference a dictionary from that point in time to identify what was the original tent of this clause. So like one example in the commerce clause, it defines what the word regulate meant at that time. And what the definition of the term regulate meant back then was to make regular. So the purpose of this commerce clause was simply to make sure states not impose tariffs on one another so they could promote free trade among the states. But in a Supreme Court decision during the FDR administration, that clause became reinterpreted to mean something totally different. It allowed basically the federal government to have a Trojan horse to go outside of its enumerated powers and basically have unlimited power. This is really says a lot about the infinite wisdom of the Almighty in giving us a written and oral Torah, which has preserved the Torah for over 3,300 years when the U.S. Constitution, relatively speaking, the ink's barely dried on it. It's just basically a little over 200 years old, and the meaning has been totally changed as a result. And I began to then get curious about more. How do you reconcile the Constitution with the government that we have today? And before I got to that, one of the things I started studying was the, the Federalist Papers, which brought a general theme. And one of the things you would see there is that the framers were stating over and over again that the only thing worse than a monarchy is a democracy. Because they said in a monarchy, if that small little group of people that were ruling the country, if they became tyrannical over the majority, the majority would just overthrow them, which happened over and over again. But they said, but what's worse is a democracy. Because then the majority can become tyrannical over the minority and there's no recourse for the minority. So they said the best structure is a constitutional republic where the federal government has enumerated specified powers. And then anything they don't have the power to do goes back to the states where the democracy exists. And the idea was that the states would be like this free market system where people didn't like the way things were going in one state because of bad policy. They could move to another state. And the states would be like these competing entities that wanted to gain a a wider population and tax base, and then they would adapt best practices. Now, that obviously hasn't happened because you see states like California who continue to double down their bad policy. But that was the general idea. And so as I studied that and I got into books on what were the Supreme Court decisions that altered the Constitution without amending it to reconcile the federal government today and that of the Constitution. And this was my passion. Before Torah, this is all I cared about, reading the news. I would use the Constitution, which sort of built me and prepared me for Torah learning because with Torah, we know we use that as our lens, our filtering mechanism for looking at the world around us and deciding what's right, what's wrong, how to respond to this. That was the way I approached politics. I just looked through the lens of the Constitution, looked at various policy positions being proposed, and used that to make my decisions. And over time, as I got into Torah study, none of that mattered to me. To me, was anything studying outside of Torah was literally almost a waste of time because the Torah had, with its vastness, had everything, every subject material that I would ever need to know was in Torah. So why waste my time with that? You know, but, but during this transition stage, when I was you know, just starting to learn Torah, I remember you know, around in 2010, a pollster came to my door and he asked if I could ask me some questions about some hot topic items for the upcoming election. I said, sure. 
And so his first question was, with regard to same-sex marriage, are you for it or against it? Now, having learned Torah, I knew I was against it. The Torah forbids that. So I said, I am against it. And before he started to mark on his piece of paper, I said, but in this country, I am for people having the freedom to choose for themselves. If someone wants to marry someone from the same sex, that's up to them. If someone does not want to marry someone from the same sex, that's up to him or her. And the guy looked at me perplexed and said, well, I don't have a box for that. He goes, so I'm just going to put undecided. I said, okay, whatever you want. And he goes, next question. With regard to abortion, are you pro-choice? Are you pro-life? And I said, I am emphatically for both. And he goes, I don't have a both. It's like, how can you not be for both choice and for life? He got very frustrated with me and discontinued the interview and went to the next door. My wife came out and said, you know, why were you doing that guy? That was painful for him. I was like, I wasn't trying to be cruel. I was trying to be truthful. I can't help it if everything is this binary argument. But over time, like I said, as I was studying more Torah, I I became more aloof from it. I sort of saw myself as a casual observer. What I knew from Torah was we're required to follow the laws of our host nation. So for instance, taxes. I made sure be as meticulous with your taxes as you are with tzedakah. And why should I even care what taxes are? Because I reconciled something. We know that in Rosh Hashanah, God determines how much money we're going to make. We also know, Halakha is, that you determine your tzedakah off after-tax income, meaning what God is telling us is that he's just concerned with what we do with our money that we have free will over. And so, therefore, when he declares how much money we're going to make at Rosh Hashanah, it has to be on an after-tax basis. So why not just do my taxes with total accuracy and not worry about it? I know that you know things like voting, if you're asked to serve on a jury duty, I would do those things. But I, I stopped watching the news about the debates over policy. I, I would learn about policy through the lens of economic research and how that was going to impact the economy and the markets. Those things matter to me simply because that's my livelihood. But other than that, I really sort of backed away and taken this very casual observer view towards the events happening in the world, with the exception of sort of seeing things that are happening and why is God doing that, like with the pandemic. God controls all nature. Why did he create this? What is he doing? So that's the only way I look at it. But I'm thinking, and why I'm having this episode is I was thinking maybe I've gone too far to the other extreme. I went from where all that mattered to me was politics to where I don't really care anymore. And I may have gone too far to the other extreme. So as I mentioned earlier, I have an amazing surprise to hopefully make up for the fact that I have not done an episode in over 30 days. I have with me today... To answer these questions for us, Rabbi Wolbees, with a plural, Rabbi Ari Wolby, Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, the dynamic duo. I want a platform discussion for this because while the Torah does discuss it, there's probably some nuance in the application of it. So I want to make sure all the sources were addressed, but if there was some gray area, there may be some difference of opinion, which I wanted explored. So thank you very much for joining us today, Rabbi Ari Wolby, Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, and sharing your wisdom with us on this subject. It's a total honor to be here with y'all. Thank you so much for inviting us. So I'll begin with you, Rabbi Ari. If you could tell us, with regard to Torah and your insights, what is our role in the host nations? It really is very interesting because we see that throughout history, the Jewish people have always been involved in 
the political arena in their communities in their in their host countries wherever we were we were always involved and had an ability to influence but i don't think that it really makes much of a difference uh, that's i'm jumping to the end almost because i think ultimately we have to realize that the almighty is orchestrating everything so while we might get a nice warm and fuzzy feeling that we're in control and that we're influencing at the end of the day we're not I'll give you just one quick modern day example, APEC. So APEC we know is involved with policy, uh, trying to influence political individuals in Congress to be pro-Israel. But when there was a vote not long ago to reprimand Ilan Omar for her anti-Semitic statements, they could not get ill Democrat congressmen to reprimand her. So there's the billions of dollars being spent on APEC not being able to influence a single vote. So while we feel like we have so much control and we have so much ability to influence, I, I think it's really out of our control. Maybe to give us a good feeling like we do have some part in it, it's a, it's a little bit weak. I'm going to pick the first fight over here. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with my esteemed brother on this particular point. In Genesis, there is one of the climactic events is when Isaac wants to give a blessing to his son, to Esau, to his older son. And Jacob comes in, swoops in, and steals it, usurps the blessing. And the blessing is, or the part of the blessing is, you should be a gvir la'achecha. You should be a master over your brother. And our sages always tell us that the conflict in, that the conflict in Jacob and his brother is going to symbolize the Conflict throughout history, the Jewish people are going to have with their overlords. And my grandfather, blessed memory, used to always say that when Jacob was given this blessing, in effect, he was given the ability to influence and to use money and bribery to persuade the overlords to do their bidding. Jacob was given blessing of great wealth and great power and great influence, and that is something that he is supposed to use throughout history. Now, it is interesting that Isaac didn't want to give it to, to Jacob. He wanted to give it to Asaph, the blessing of great power and influence and uh, the ability to determine the direction. So it seems like maybe the disagreement that my brother and I have is the same disagreement between Isaac and Rebecca. Isaac wanted, you know, the Jews to be quiet and docile and subservient in their host nations and let Asav, the Gentiles, so to speak, let them lord over us. But you know what? We'll have our spiritual corner. We'll have to focus on what really matters. And we will excel in the spiritual. Maybe that's what Isaac believed. Comes along, Rebecca, and she says, no. Maybe Jacob himself and the great Jews of history, they could survive being poor, being weak, being depressed, and you know what? They'll still have their spiritual world, and that's really what matters. But collectively, as a nation, we have to make sure that we have everything. We have spiritual dominance, and we have material and political influence as well that's going to allow us to endure throughout the nation. So I do think that, you know, as many times in history that there's been influential Jews going all the way back to Daniel. You know, Daniel is part of the royal court in Babylon, and he has great influence, and he's there behind the scenes being able to manipulate uh, public policy. And of course, uh, Mordechai, he too is someone who embeds himself in the Persian Empire, 
And even today, you know, Jews have been overrepresented in every area of excellence in the United States and the developed world. And the fact that we do have a say, we do have the president's ear, we have the ear of Congress, and we have a lobbying arm, I think it does help contribute towards influencing them and towards persuading them to be pro-Israel, to be good to the Jews, to make sure that anti-Semitism is going to be squelched when it does rear its ugly head. I think that just with the question of influence, I think it is indeed enshrined in the Torah that we should be able to have a say, we should be able to determine, so to speak, a little bit about what happens to us in our host nation. However, I do think that there's a difference between public-facing political influence versus behind-the-scenes influence. Like, for example, in, in January, there was a impeachment of the president, which is a very rare event in American history. Now, who was on the other side trying to impeach the president? You had uh, one Jew, and then another Jew, and then a third Jew, and then a fourth Jew. There's four Jews who are there trying to impeach the president. And I did hear some terrible anti-Semitic flare-ups that happened as a result of that. The fact that you have Jews here on one side. And by the way, the, the other side as well, the defense team is also Jews. The Jewish lawyers and all that, they're all running the show. Does it look good or does it portend well for our nation when we have such a public-facing role? Half the country is Democrats. Half the country is Republicans. And politics has become a really big deal. It has replaced sports as the blood sport. You know, as sports becomes more and more sanitized, oh, you can't tackle the guy really aggressively. So politics becomes more and more aggressive to allow people to have a place to, to kind of let out their testosterone and frustration. So people take politics very seriously. And then you have Jews on both sides of this. And then you have half the population says, hey, those Jews want to impeach my president. And then you have the other half and say, hey, these Jews, they're defending the president. So I don't know how good that is, the fact that Jews are going to be involved in this blood sport and going to contribute, perhaps, to anti-Semitic uprising on both sides, because neither, neither political side has a monopoly on Jew hatred. So I picked the first fight. What do you have to say, guys? We said it's a blood sport, right? So I understand that verse completely differently. You see, when we say master over your brother, it's that you are obligated, the Jewish people are obligated to be an example over the world. We are an example to the nations. And when we're not an example, appropriately, we're held accountable. And that's charge that the Jewish people have been charged with that blessing, is that yes, when we are an example to the nations, they will look up to us, they'll respect us. But when we try to infiltrate and assimilate and show that we're one of them and we, and we compromise on all of our values, that's when we are beaten up. And we've seen that time and again throughout our you know, illustrious history that we've, be, we've been beaten and we have always been the underdog. We never see the Jewish people as, ah, you see, because we invested $10 billion in, in APAC, now we have strength. No, we're always like, one second, why, why aren't things going our way? Now, you mentioned Mordechai. It's a beautiful, a beautiful analogy. And I was thinking to mention Mordechai and Esther and their involvement. But if you notice at the end of the Megillah, it says that Mordechai was a leader to his people and beloved by many, not by all. And our sages explained because he got involved in politics. Politics is not a place for a nice Jewish rabbi like Mordechai. Now, I want to just mention one thing. 
I'd venture to say that our current president, our 45th president of the United States, Donald J. Trump, has been more positive to the Jewish people in the state of Israel than probably all other presidents combined. It's unbelievable. And yet we don't see that he has such a high level of Jewish influence around him. You had President Obama, every one of his speechwriters were Jewish. Every one of his advisors were Jewish. All of his people that he placed in different significant offices were Jewish. And yet his anti-Semitic blood that he had out for the Jews was very apparent. He aided the Iranians. Every time Israel needed approval for certain missile acquisitions, he denied it. He didn't give them the planes they needed. He didn't give them the bombs they needed. He was giving more money than ever to the Palestinians for blowing up Jewish people. Where are his Jewish advisors? So I don't want to get too much into politics here, but I think that it really is, it's shocking. It's shocking how just because we have Jews involved in politics does not mean it's going to be better for the Jewish people. That's my point. In addition to that is that the majority of Jews in this country supported Obama, and the majority of Jews in this country dislike President Trump when you had such a, a conflicting situation with how they were treating Israel, which is also very interesting. Well, I would point out that that reality that the majority of Jews in this country still left, which has been like that for, for decades, I would say that even the people who dislike Trump, and there are many that I've spoken to personally about this issue, they will acknowledge that he's been incredibly pro-Israel. I don't think there's anyone who says he hasn't been pro-Israel with you know, recognizing the Golan and moving the embassy and trying to forge Middle East peace plan with the UAE. I don't think anyone questions Trump's uh, pro-Israel credentials. Now, before he was president, we didn't know because he didn't have much of a record, but that, I think, was accept- that is accepted by all. So I would just give a little asterisk or, or an addition to what you said, and, and that is that most Jews in this country are not voting or based upon, let's say, pro-Israel, being pro-Israel per se, because if they would, then they would have more reason to support Trump. But obviously, people vote because of a collection of, of interests and values and priorities and the like. And if Israel is your only issue, I don't think anyone would question the fact that Trump's your guy, because he has, again, like displayed tremendous pro-Israel policy over the course of his first term. However, if there are other themes that are not necessarily about Israel that matter to you, then that would be something that you would, uh, you would have to discuss. Now, I want to just go back to the original point of looking at Jacob and Esau as being the symbolism, the embodiment, so to speak, of this dilemma, you know, Jews living amongst non-Jews, being subject to the whims of their Gentile overlords. The Ramban, in the beginning of Parshas Vayishlach, in Genesis, when Jacob is about to reunite with his brother, the Ramban has an entire essay, and the Midrash also brings it over there, about how this particular encounter, where Jacob prepares for a bunch of things, he prays, and he prepares for war, and he prepares a nice bribe to cajole his brother. This is the model, we're told, of how we're supposed to relate to the Esav throughout history. And... If you look at that story, you do see how Jacob is constantly humbling himself, and he's speaking to Asaph with great reverence. He's flattering him, and that's okay, because 
I think what this is telling us is that our role in Asav's territory is to subject ourselves, is to make ourselves subservient, is to not believe that we are masters over this country. In fact, the Medrash brings a story how Rabbi Judah the Prince was writing a letter to the Emperor Antoninus, and he had his scribe writing the letter. So he starts the letter, and he says, okay, this letter is addressed from Judah, the Nasi, the president, the master, to the Emperor Antoninus. So Rabbi Judah the Prince takes the letter, and he starts reading. He says, no, no, no. He tears it up and says, this is how you write it. From your servant Judah. This is the most important Jew in the entire world. The Nasi, the president of the Sanhedrin. Rabbi Judah the Prince. How does he address himself? From your servant Judah to our master, the Emperor Antoninus. And in fact, the Ramban even quotes another Midrash that says that Jacob should have tried to ignore Asaph, try to go underneath the radar. Why do you take the wild dog and grab it by its ears? That's the words of the Midrash. The idea, I think, that is conveyed is that we have to recognize that this is not our homeland. And yes, we're proud citizens, and yes, we're involved in civics, and yes, we vote, and yes, we try to lobby and try to influence policy to the best of our ability, but we are not the masters of this country. We are visitors. And thank God we live in the United States of America, the best country in history, and the best country for Jews in history, and the country of tremendous blessing and benevolence to the Jewish people. Nevertheless, I think it's important for us to remember what Jacob is telling us over here, that Asaph, so to speak, the Gentiles, they're in charge, and the way that we have to relate to them is with deference and not to make ourselves pompous and give the impression that we're in control. No, we're visitors here, and we're going to be gracious, but let's not awaken the ire of, of our Gentile overlords. I just want to, want to add one thing here. If, you know, see, Yaakov mentioned, are we Jew first or American first? At my son's bris, I spoke, and I, I was talking about how, you know, at that point, we were in Houston already eight years and the majority of my children at that point were also born in Texas. And I said, but why are we here? And I said this were many, many people at the Bris. I said, why are we here in Houston, Texas? I said, we're here because our job, me, my family, myself, my wife, my children, our job is to help the Jewish people engage with their Judaism and build their connection with the Almighty. And as soon as that job is done, we go back to Israel because that's where we belong. And I remember that night I got a phone call from one of the people at that celebration of the bris. And he says to me, I'm shocked by what you said. He said, don't you know that we're Americans first and Jews second? I said, well, my dear friend, that is wrong. We're Jews first and we're Americans second. We always need to remember that our relationship with God supersedes everything else. And that's us being Jewish. Now, it's interesting that 95% of Torah-observant Jews will vote for who's going to be better for Israel, and it's usually Republican. 95% of Torah-observant Jews vote Republican. And it's, I think it's interesting that the people who drift away and distance themselves from God more and more, i.e. people less and less and less observant, will vote more and more liberal. It's an interesting pattern that we see constantly well, it's great that they all live in the swing state of New York, so they could really influence uh, the Electoral College. 
It's a shifting of priorities. The more you study Torah and, and, and Israel becomes more of a of the most highest priority to you. And you know, too, from the Torah, there's a Torah verse, which you guys probably know by heart and where it's where it is, that when the other countries are good to Israel, God is good to them and vice versa. So as an American citizen, we know that by America being good to Israel, you know, that's what's going to cause this country to prosper. So it's a lot of people think that, oh, Israel couldn't survive without United States of America's financial support and other types of support. And I always argue, no, 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 no. The United States wouldn't survive without providing that support. It is well known that the great Torah sages who lived in the United States would always prominently display an American flag and they would celebrate the 4th of July because they recognized that America is the kingdom of kindness. And the kindness they've done not only for the Jewish people, but for the nations of the world has been remarkable and unprecedented. You've never found a kingdom of kindness such as the United States of America. And uh, to Dan's point, I always thought in the Yom Kippur War, the Arab nations, they imposed an oil blockade against the United States. And they tried to kind of cripple the United States economy. Now, we fast forward, you know, 40, 50 years later, and today the largest oil producer in the entire world is the United States. And no one would have believed that would have happened going back to 1973. But in my opinion, the reason why it happened is because the Americans, when the Jewish people were facing elimination, facing annihilation during the Yom Kippur War, Nixon just took all the armaments they had and put them on planes and shipped them to Israel and braved the oil weapon of, of the Arabs. And they might say, oh, these Americans are sticking up for the Jews and they're suffering with oil, I'm going to make him the biggest oil producer in human history. And indeed, you're right. When people and nations, when they bless us, we're blessed. That was the first thing that was told to Abraham. Those who bless us will be blessed, and those who curse us will be cursed. There's a tale that's told about the Arab nations when they produced the protocols of the elders of Zion, that they were sending it to all the leaders of all the nations of the world. And they sent it to one of the Far East nations, and they said, what, what are you sending us this book? They said, we, we want you to know this, you know, obviously, conspiracy that the Jewish people are controlling the world. So the members of this Far East nation said, what exactly are you trying to tell us? Of course, we all know that. Like, what's new? Tell us something we didn't know. I want to ask another question. Rabbi Yokoff, will be you sort of brought up that through this having financial resources and influence that that can lend to us helping with the areas of like anti-Semitism towards the Jewish people in Israel. However, you and I did a podcast together talking about anti-Semitism. And the one thing that we made very clear through the Torah verses is that anti-Semitism is a force that is constantly in existence and when the Jewish people are staying committed to the role that God created for them in the world, then he protects them from that and makes the other people like them. And when they back away from Torah and observance, then he pulls away his shield and whoever wants to grab that hammer of anti-Semitism is free to do so. And that the only way we can influence anti-Semitism and make it not happen is by doing teshuva. 
And so when I see these anti-Semitic things happening in this country today, to me, it's just a message to do teshuva because that's the only thing that's going to influence it going away. So I appreciate your sort of reconciling the statement you made from that previous podcast and with what you said just now. I don't think bribery solves anti-Semitism, but it does solve violence. You know, the Germans were, who no one was more anti-Semitic than the Germans or is anti-Semitic than the Germans. And according to Jewish tradition, Amalek, the nemesis of the Jewish people, actually settled in Germania, in, in, in Germany. Well, even they were willing to take bribes and, and save Jews, right? We know those stories where they would say, okay, you know, you give us a million dollars, we'll give you a, we'll give you a, a train full of Jews. So I'm not saying that bribery will solve anti-Semitism and remedy the problem, but it may attenuate the symptoms a little bit. And yes, you're right, in an ideal world, there wouldn't be anti-Semitism because we would be respected by all, revered by all because we're God's people and we're God's nation and we're holy and we're righteous and people will love us because we're doing the right thing. But of course, we don't live in a perfect world. There is anti-Semitism and maybe a way to mitigate a little bit of the effects of anti-Semitism is via bribery. I want Rabbi Ari to respond, but I want to set, set up a little more on this subject. And that is, when you see these things happening in the world, it seems like beyond bribery, I can see how that would work. They still may hate us in their heart, but they love us by the impact we have on their bank account. So they refrain from actualizing their hatred towards. But when these things happen, you know, you see people try in the Jewish community trying to be vocal, let the other nations know, let the other citizens in this country know who are not Jewish, what is happening so they can try to influence it through public dialogue. To me, from what you said in the previous podcast interview we did, that doesn't have any influence. And when these things happen, the only thing we should do is share it with each other to know that we need to be doing teshuva collectively so we can make it go away. But how would you respond to that topic, Rabbi Ari? Well, I think that whatever the Jewish people did, we were always blamed for something. When we were wealthy, we were accused of stealing people's money and being aggressive towards the downtrodden. When we didn't have money, we were called leeches. So we, we never really won on any side. Us having money didn't make them love us more, and us not having money didn't ha- let them have more compassion for us. So I think at the end of the day, we, we just, from a big picture, like I said right at the onset, I believe that if, look, let's look at Jewish history. Let's look at Jewish history, and we see throughout all of the prophets, when the Jewish people, people behaved the way God wanted them to behave, they got prosperity. And when they didn't, they got beaten to shreds. No matter how much influence, yeah, it can help over here and it can help over there. And sometimes God weaves the miracles through those connections, like Mordechai and Esther, as a great example. But if we didn't do the right thing, us having all the money and all the power didn't help. And if we did the right thing, us not having any ability to influence, they don't limit our ability to to have that blessing. So what's your response, though, to us trying to remedy anti-Semitism happening like in the country today by being outspoken to the public about these events occurring? I grew up in, in New York, and many of those years I was in Brooklyn, New York, and I remember seeing a congressman. It could be he was a state congressman, but his name was Dove Heikind. And I've seen Dove Heikin for years on years and years pointing out all the different anti-Semitic events that were occurring. And he would go to those events, to those, you know, riots and to whatever. And he would, he would have cameras there and he would show the world 
and nothing changed. Not one scintilla of change occurred because he pointed it out to the world. Now, again, to him, it might be very, very important to portray it, to show it, to scream and and shout, we're never going to let this happen again. I don't see that anything changed because of him. Now, he's a great guy, doing great things. But is there less anti-Semitism now in New York? I don't think so. In fact, I think there's much more anti-Semitism in New York since then. So your point is validating what I was thinking. Like, it doesn't have any impact. So we shouldn't be trying to influence it through those venues. But it's the same thing with, you know, our livelihood. We always have to put our efforts forward. The results are in the hands of Hashem. The world operates by the laws of nature that God embedded in the world. But there's an overall influence that the Almighty is controlling the world with. We have to try to do the best we can, everything we can do to influence, but not to put all of our eggs in that basket recognizing, oh, we have control because we got the president in our pocket, we got the congressman in our pocket, we got all the senators in our pocket, and we get, we have no one in our pocket. The Almighty is the only one who's got every control of everything. We see the, the known statement by our sages that that the heart of the, of the kings and the officers are in the hand of God. The meaning that even the influence on them is very limited from our standpoint. The Almighty's got all the control over them. Actually, what you said really helps me reconcile my original question, which is how, how involved should I be if God is orchestrating most the macro events that influence people is just like the livelihood. Even though he controls how much money I make, I can't sit here and do nothing and here in my office. I have to take the initiative and then pray for him to, to make the outcome the way I want. It's a hybrid because we've seen also throughout history that when the Jewish people were facing terrible calamities from their host nations, they did two things, like Jacob. They did two things. First is they got everyone in the study halls and they started praying and praying and praying. But they also sent in a representative trying to bribe or trying to do whatever they can to preserve the Jewish people. Thank you, Rabbi Ari. That that actually answers a lot of that, that question I had. My next question, which I want to pose first to Rabbi Yokoff Wolby, is how much, as citizens of the United States, should we allow Torah to influence how we vote? Because we don't want to take Torah law to U.S. law. We don't want to make it a capital offense to eat at McDonald's. So explain to me your thoughts on that, Rabbi Yokoff. It's a good question, and I don't think that someone needs to have their vote be perfectly aligned with Torah. Like you said, you know, the United States law, common law, statutory law does not follow Torah. And we're okay with that because, you know, Torah law is a Torah law for the Jewish people. And of course, it's going to be the law in the land when the Jewish people have total hegemony over the land and Torah law is actually being applied now, we would say the Torah law is a good idea, so some of the ideas in Torah law might be, it might be wise for other nations to adopt it, and many of the laws have been adopted, indeed. Many of the laws that are found all over the world, like common law, are indeed, find their roots in Torah and in, in ancient systems of, of law. So I do think that we can take some of the principles of Torah, like, for example, like criminal justice, justice reform, things like that. I think how the Torah deals with criminals— and how the Torah creates a whole system of rehabilitation, I think it's a very valuable thing that probably help us a lot uh, today. That said, I don't think I agree with you completely that we can support policy 
in the United States of America that is not in line with Torah policy, that's okay. There's no mandate for us to have our law in this country follow Torah law. That said, I think people, depending upon how much of an impact Torah has in their lives, Torah is going to shape their outlook and shape their, their, their view on what should be done in the world. So I think invariably that's going to impact how they see the world, how they see policy, and how they vote. But I don't believe that people are required. I don't think there's any problem. Suppose we say, hey, the democratic platform is more in line with Torah. Suppose we do that for sure. I don't think it would be mandatory for Jews to vote Democrat or vice versa. If we say that the Republican platform is more in line with Torah, for sure. Suppose we know that for sure. I still don't think that people would be required to to vote that way because people are allowed to vote however they, they choose. Personally, the way I see it, just as an individual, is that because Torah has a tremendous effect in how I see the world, that is going to be the dominant question determining who I'm going to support, but I don't think it's mandatory for people to follow that. Any follow-up points that either of you want to make on this subject? Rabbi Ari? I think overall we have to recognize that life is really, for each individual and for the Jewish people as a whole, is a set of challenges that the Almighty gives us. Our whole life, from the moment we're born, is crafted perfectly for us all of the circumstances that we're going to we're going to meet throughout our life are handcrafted by the Almighty. And we need to recognize that to understand that this whole big world that we're seeing busy all around us with all of the news and all the media and all of everything is really just it's the backdrop to this challenge of life. It's the Yetzahara putting a lot of things in front of us to see whether or not look, the truth is that what has really changed, aside from our insurance, that if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor, which you can't, but a lot of you know those small things, but really, someone who serves Hashem, nothing really changed in our lives in the past 15 years from politics. Nothing really changed. Okay, you get a little tax break here, right? The, but overall, a person who's on a mission in their relationship with God, so you'll have different disturbances or different things that change but overall, we still have unbelievable freedom. And I tell people all the time in my classes, I said, do you realize how blessed we are that we're living in a country where we're not going to be persecuted for teaching Torah? There literally hasn't been a single nation on planet Earth that hasn't persecuted us for exactly what we're doing right now, studying Torah, except for the United States. It's the most remarkable thing. It, it, it really is an unbelievable blessing. I think we need to stop every day and say thank you, Hashem, for giving us the opportunity to be in such a, an incredible host, host, host nation. With that, I think we need to be appreciative and thankful and contribute in whatever way we can to be more civil, more proper, more godlike, be an emissary of the Almighty in this world where people look at us and they say, ah, this is what a Jew is supposed to look like. This is a Jew who's honest. This is a Jew who has integrity. This is a Jew who's a, an example of what good character is. I think that that needs to be the overall, are we kicking and screaming, demonstrating? I've never, literally never seen a single demonstration that has, that has worked. I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen it. They, how many demonstrations were there not to give away Gush Katif, which is part of, part of the Gaza Strip? I mean, literally the entire country was demonstrating, and it was still given away. So what did it help? 
except for waste, millions and millions of human hours. I, I, you understand? So people felt good. They went out, and I yelled, and I screamed, and I got into a fight with the police. I could really—what good did that do? Rabbi Yokoff, any final words by you? Yes. So I, I was just thinking kind of on a big, you know, 30,000, 50,000-foot view— Jewish history has been a litany of exiles. You know, we've been in every country. We've had the Jews in North Africa and the Jews in Arabia, the Jews in Asia Minor and every country in Europe. And we spend a couple hundred years there in Spain and in England. And we're kicked out. We go to France and we kicked out. We go to Germany and we go to Poland. We go to Lithuania. We go to Russia. The Jews have really made our rounds. And I think broadly speaking, you know, this is the almighty delineating for us, paving for us the path for us to eventually go back to Israel, to go back to our homeland. But in the book of Numbers, the end of the book of Numbers, it talks about the 42 stops the Jewish people had between Egypt and eventually in Israel once they entered the land under Joshua. And the commentaries there tell us that just like the Jewish people when they left Egypt, it took them 42 stops to get to their eventual destination. So too, over the course of our history, the Jewish people are going to have 42 stations in the diaspora outside of Israel before eventually come back. And it was made, someone made the calculation and said, actually, the last place where the Jewish people are going to coalesce before they eventually go back to Israel, that's going to be the United States. So it seems like we're at the final juncture, the final station before we eventually go home. Uh, now, one more point in, in that Rabbi Chaim Volozhner, who was the great leader of the Jewish people and the great student of the Gona Vilna, someone asked him, when's Messiah coming? So he said, this is in the late 1700s or early 1800s, he says, when there's Torah flourishing in the United States, which was, was the new world, might, have, might as well have been a Mars for us, according to people then, you know, living in the pale of the settlement, living in Russia, living in Lithuania, the idea of Torah flourishing in the United States was a total pipe dream. When Torah f- flourishes in the United States, that's when Messiah is going to come. But then Rabbi Shach, who was the leader of the Torah community in Israel in the late 20th century, he said, no, it doesn't mean New York or New Jersey. It means Texas. When there's Torah flourishing in Texas, that's when Messiah is going to come. So I feel like you know that we have the Shema podcast and we have Torch in Texas, in, in Houston. I feel like we're kind of at the vanguard of this effort to wrap up our mission here in stop number 42 and have Torah flourish in Texas. And hopefully that will help us nudge us past the finish line back to where we belong, back to Israel. Amazing. So thank you so much once again. I love this format and hope we can do it again. Beautiful. Thank you so much for the opportunity and the privilege to be part of this. Thank you for hosting us. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting Torch so they can continue to spread Torah wisdom to the world by making a donation at torchweb.org and clicking Donate in the top right corner of the page. And if you would like to get in contact with our host with comments, suggestions for future topics of learning, or questions for him or his guest rabbis, you may email him at president at torchweb.org.